the last I'm on a few uh, different forums and listservs, uh, therapeutic. If, if you don't know me, I think most everybody out there knows me. I'm a clinician and a therapist. And uh, my wife, Stella, is a researcher, research psychologist and a neuroscientist. So um, we both peruse and look at what's going on, particularly right now. Uh, obviously, there's a lot going on on this planet. But um, there's been a, a, a phrase that's been thrown around lately called... Um, it's just a conjunction, it's a co-regulation. So co-regulation is a, um, a term used uh, as a reminder for people who are dealing with other people that your nervous system, no matter what you say, um, your nervous system is going to influence those people that you communicate with and interact with. So in other words, if you are uh, grounded, um, stable, clear, I think clear is one of the most important things. When you communicate with anybody, you're going to basically give them, give that other person that energy. And at the same time, if, if we're stressed, if we're anxious, if we're tense, if we're nervous, when we communicate, other people are going to pick that up as well. So it's really important now. I've noticed myself sort of taking a fast from the news <laughs> because sometimes you, you, you don't realize it and you start not necessarily tuning in. I think we're all a little more conscious than that. But it's very easy uh, because we have these, these nervous systems, especially right now. This is, this is way more magnified right now. We have these nervous systems that really pick up on other people's nervous systems, on what's happening. So that's why, if you can, and um, <clears throat> I think it was Yukteswar who said in the Holy Science, uh, keep the company of saints. <laughs> Do you know any saints living around you keep their company? If not, go on Google and look up some videos of enlightened people and watch those videos, <laughs> listen to the audios. Um, take these 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 classes uh, through CSA. It's very very important. Co-regulation is is really um, a, a key to our own inner stability. So um, <clears throat> the term is being used quite a bit now, and uh, the more we're conscious of of this, uh, the more we can stay centered. And, and keep our bodies from going into the stress responses. I mean, this is a big problem right now. Um, obviously, collectively, there's a lot of stress on the planet. The way that our, our nervous systems work is sort of behind the scenes in many senses. And this is going to lead into Kriya Yoga, I promise you, because it's all about transformation. But right now, there's such a magnification of what our nervous systems do and how they work that we can really take the principles of yoga and apply them uh, directly to this this situation that we're all in um so there's there's a there's some very deep responses that uh that happen as we face an environment and conditions that are a little unstable 
And what's happening now, and again, what is being identified more and more in therapeutic circles is, you know, there's, there's two basic responses to stress that the nervous system uh, undergoes that most people are quite familiar with. And that's called the fight or flight response. So the fight response is, you know, put them up, I'm going to fight this. And then the flight response is obviously get out of here, run away. And there's been some speculation about um, the, the fight response, which is kind of interesting. These are, these are theories, uh, hypothesis put forth by psych, uh, psychologists, a few. That some of the resistance that we see now, um, especially here in the United States, to, um, you know, being responsible and, you know, doing certain things to slow down the spread of this virus. So people who are fighting that are stuck in the fight response, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's a way to feel a sense of control and a sense of, uh, I'm not going to let this thing get me, and this is how it's going to manifest. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do because I'm free. So that that's that's one thing that's happening. The flight response um, is uh, what is really responsible now for people sort of um, having had enough of this. You know, I'm done. I'm this is uh, you know I've just had it. And I can't sit around and meditate all day anymore, so I'm just going to go out there. But by far the the, the more um, problematic response comes after that, and that's the freeze we freeze response, and that comes with feelings of of hopelessness and helplessness, um, and you know where there's there's literally nothing to do anymore. So that's when things get a little bit dangerous and that's when it's important for people to learn how to reach out and to um, find some stability because that means that the nervous system uh, really can go through some uh, very disturbing changes. But this is where uh, our spiritual practices come in because, as I said, this is a magnification of of how we respond very basically and primitively, instinctually to stresses and conditions in our environment. This really is magnifying it. It's a huge wake-up call if we know how to use it correctly. By internalizing our awareness and being conscious of our nervous systems and what they're doing, uh, we can take charge of the situation and in essence, uh, neutralize these primitive uh, primordial reactive patterns. <clears throat> there was a word uh, made popular. It's actually a combination of two words. Uh, a couple of decades ago, uh, well, neurotheology. Theology, of course, is the study of religious experience, um, those things religious, and then neuro was put in front of that word. And there was a couple of books uh, written one was um, why God won't go away, and the other book was the mystical mind. Very good books. Uh, Roy actually um, gave me a copy of uh, the mystical mind and said this is this uh, really points out um, some factors that you might be interested in since your field is neurology. 
So what, what neurotheology was pointing out and continues to, although the, the phrase isn't as popular as it was, um, pointing out that our nervous systems really are designed uh, or can be at least pointed in the, the direction of spiritual awakening with methods, tools, and techniques that gradually transform and refine the nervous system. Paramahansa Yogananda in the 1920s said that uh, the brain and spine is the altar of God and that yoga and meditation will transform the brain and nervous system. So this is, this is being uh, confirmed and verified now. So our practices basically start out by quieting and restructuring deeper levels of the brain. And as I brought up in the beginning, these deep levels, especially right now, are really getting triggered for the majority of people on this planet. Um, but it's, it's this sense of staying centered, quiet, and the other really important factor here, which those of you who've heard me speak before have heard me mention this one a lot, is that term called neuroplasticity. So our brains are plastic, um, and they are always conforming to our environment and to our intentions. And it's not always what happens in our environment, it's how we process what happens, how we perceive that. So um, this is a process that starts when we're uh, born and goes on through the end of our lives. Neuroplasticity uh, was, wasn't really identified uh, until about 20, 25 years ago. It was considered uh, in, in neurology that your brain uh, you know, was, was what it was, and it was just going to be uh, as it was, and it couldn't change, and once neurons started dying off, that was it. They are gone. But now we know that's not true, um, and that's, that's the other uh, principle I want to mention. So first is neuroplasticity, and the next one is neurogenesis. So stem cells can be created and are created and will um, help the brain restructure depending upon the, the direction of our intention, what, how we're living, how we're thinking, how we're perceiving. So in, in spiritual teachings, you know, we are given uh, various uh, principles, directions. We're in, in uh, yoga, we're, giving the, we're given sort of the Ten Commandments, the yamas and the niyamas, the observances and the restraints. And we're, we're told that if we practice those, um, our nervous system will begin to change. It will begin to quiet. <clears throat> so just as, um, you know, when you see a cow pasture, you can tell where the cows uh, walk because that ground gets very, very worn down. It's the same way with our thinking and our thought patterns. If we can direct them, 
intentionally using these this principle of neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, the brain will change and transform over time. Um, one of the really uh, remarkable things that my, uh, my wife and myself are doing is we're studying meditators now and studying the, uh, we're give, giving um, psychological battery testing and looking at <clears throat> the changes that occur psychologically as the individual's physiology changes. I know that sounds like a lot, but we're measuring the brain, specifically measuring brain waves, watching how those, the, the quick course in brain waves, your brain waves basically um, are representing the electrophysiology and the electrochemistry of the brain. So it's, it's sort of a signature. It's, it is telling, we can look at, at somebody's brain map, for instance, and it tells us this person is in this state. And that state can vary from an extremely stressed out post-traumatic stress disorder to cosmic consciousness. <laughs> so there's all kinds of factors uh, many thousands of factors actually that we measure and look at, but we can actually see this now. So what we do is we're correlating um, these brain changes with psychological changes, behavioral changes, and sure enough, it, it, um, it shows up. So we can confirm and identify now what actually happens as we go through our spiritual disciplines and along our spiritual path. Um, <clears throat> what is unique to Kriya Yoga is uh, there's a few things that are unique to it, but but what um, we've been looking at lately is the you know Kriya Yoga is a, is a is a philosophy. It's a it's a lifestyle. It is a, it, a, uh, it is holistic, but there are specific meditation techniques. Um, uh, in Kriya Yoga that go along with Kriya Yoga or taught in Kriya Yoga that do seem to have a profound effect on this transformation of the nervous system. Um, we're also <clears throat> re-looking again at mantra. What does mantra do to the brain? Um, and, you know, it's, it was a little controversial for a while because there was a book uh, written way back by one of uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's students, uh, Herbert Benson, and he was a, a, a medical doctor, and he wrote a book called The Relaxation Response. And he said that uh, the mantra really doesn't matter. There was some research done with mantras, and they, they couldn't really find any significant variable. It seemed like you could use a Sanskrit mantra, or you could go one, two, one, two, or relax, or om, or God, and it didn't seem to make uh, all that much difference. Um, and that may or may not be true. I, I, we haven't really done a lot of work on that, but we have been looking at the Kriya Yoga mantra, uh, which was popularized by Paramahansa Yogananda. It was a, he actually would suggest two, uh, two different mantras. Uh, the first one was Hong Sa. And then the other one, which is not just a Kriya Yoga mantra, it's a Siddha mantra used by the Siddha yogis, uh, Soham. So we're, we're really embarking on um, some more research looking at 
the physiological effects of different mantras on the brain and nervous system. Now, trying to sort out, is it, is it really because of that particular vibration of those sounds? Does that do something to, to the nervous system? Or is it just the fact that you know, we're sitting here focusing on our breath, listening to a mantra for 20, 30, 40 minutes? So we haven't quite sorted that out yet. I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, so the, the next phase, though, once we um, get initiated to Kriya Yoga and learn the more advanced practices, these are very powerful for a number of reasons. Uh, for, for one, <clears throat> these are focal points in the brain and body, psychophysiologic techniques, that really do produce a lot of changes in the, the brain, the bloodstream and the nervous system. Um, and what, what we found, um, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, that as the Kriya Yogi advances, there is a, a very specific activation pattern that occurs in the brain. So it's as if all of the neurons in the brain, uh, get activated, but not activated in the negative sense, but activated in that they are uh, literally lit up. And, and I do mean literally because, uh, you know, there are certain voltages that your brain gives off. And if we were to wire you up, most people could uh, light up a 40-watt light bulb with the electrical activity from their brain. I have a feeling a Kriya Yogi can go far beyond that. I don't know. We'll find that out someday, I'm sure. But the Kriya Yoga uh, Pranayam uh, that is taught, the main one, um, has a, a per, this profound activating effect on the brain. It, if you're interested, it produces a brainwave called gamma. And gamma uh, is <clears throat> a, high, a faster frequency um, brainwave. The interesting thing about it, though, when it's produced in advanced meditators, there's a, a binding, uh, a binding action that occurs. So, in other words, all of the networks in the brain uh, communicate. Um, an example of this is uh, years ago, uh, researcher Richie Davidson was very close with the Dalai Lama. Um, got the Dalai Lama to uh, let him do research on, on some of his most advanced Tibetan meditators. So Richard Davidson, you know, took him into a lab and hooked him up to brainwave equipment, EEG equipment. <clears throat> and sure enough, these um, advanced Tibetan meditators all had this heightened activity. And the, the thing about this activity specifically is that it is, when the brain is is activated that way, it is completely present. It's in the moment. There's a part of the brain called the default network that is um, sort of responsible for keeping us uh, um, sound asleep uh, in one sense, but it's it's also there so that we don't have to think all the time, so that we can just act automatically. That's why it's called the default network. But what you see in advanced meditators is that default network is put away. And this activation pattern becomes uh, the dominant EEG frequency. So what does that mean behaviorally or psychologically or spiritually for that matter? It means that 
though the, those particular meditators are, are always present, always in the moment, and always perceiving things as they occur in that moment, not from memory or not from some future perspective. And, you know, taking this a step further, this same activation pattern seen in these Tibetan uh, meditators we see in Kriya Yogis. So it is, um, it is a very um, interesting uh, thing, that, uh, thing that the brain does as a result of um, these meditation techniques. So, of course, we can, we can encourage um, this, this neurological change uh, just by understanding what, what they mean and what they are. And although the phrase be present has become a sort of cliche, um, it is one of the most important parts of our practice to just be present, observe, and uh, learn how to uh, witness and just, or learn how to, to identify with the part of ourself that is witnessing and just observe and watch. So, this is now not a question anymore. I remember when I first read the autobiography and I heard several lectures um, from Paramhansa Yogananda, read them, of course, and then, and then meeting with Roy. Um, I wasn't skeptical, but it, 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 I really needed to see it. I have a scientific mind and I sort of I had, to, had to see it, had to experience it, had to feel it. And I have to say that after these 35 years of, of study, uh, it's all real. <laughs> it, um, th- this is a profound teaching and a profound path. And it, is, it will lead us, uh, as our gurus have told us, to um, uh, a life that we could not possibly have imagined. <clears throat> so we're... We're involved in a research now. We're finalizing um, some of our research projects. Uh, some of you know I've been involved with the prison system in California. I, I now reside in Georgia. I moved back to Georgia. I live just a mile away from the Center for Spiritual Awareness Grounds. But I'm still um, watching things in California. Of course, everything is on pause right now because of the... Um, you know, the, the danger of the spread. <clears throat> we had a good project going there. We'll see what happens over time. So also, we're still uh, finalizing details with equipment manufacturers to um, see if there's, as technology improves, uh, there's more and more ways to measure what's happening in meditation and perhaps continue to uh, facilitate and accelerate the meditation process uh, for people who need that sort of thing. Biofeedback, uh, you know, Roy used to, to talk about it quite a bit. <clears throat> and some of you may have heard of Swami Rama, um, who had an institute in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And he was very um, well known for his rather superhuman abilities to control the physiology of his body, which, of course, he, li- he learned living in caves in the Himalayas for 45 years. But um, when he came here to the U.S., 
he said, look, if you can, if, if, if science can come up a, with a way to measure these things, measure these, these physiologic parameters, that, then I can teach you how to control them. And he, so he was actually a, a big proponent of biofeedback and uh, pushed that out as a, as a training tool. So anyway, um, I wanted to, to leave plenty of time for questions if you have any. Let's see what time. Yeah, it's three o'clock, so I've got plenty of time. So does anybody have any questions, comments, anything that you want me to touch on or go back to? Hi, Marty. Walter speaking. Hi. Hi, Walter. I just had a question regarding your research for the mantras. Uh, is there a special meaning or make it stronger, the, the mantras, when you have a special intonation or when you are informed before you sing it about the meaning of the mantras? Uh, the meaning, it seems to be less, but the intonation is important. Um, I don't want to get too far off, off here, but the Rig Veda, knowledge encapsulated in sound, And uh, the, the intonation is very important. Um, but we're looking at, um, you know, the Rig Veda's thousands and thousands of verses. But we're, look, we're looking at specific mantras, for instance, taken from the Rig Veda, the Gayatri, the Mahamritan Jaya, for instance. But also looking at what are called Shakti mantras, which are very uh, sh short um, syllables, uh, Bija mantras also. But the, but yes, to, to, you don't you don't have to know the meaning uh, because the you know theoretically the proper intonation carries the knowledge it carries the meaning. Um, so we're we're looking at all of those factors right now, but we have to start out slowly with very simple a uh, mantra. I have a question. Hi, Marty. Hi. I just wanted to know. Uh, when you sing it out loud, the mantra, is it better? Because for me, when I sing it out loud, I feel more strongly the vibration inside of my brain and my whole body. And yeah. And it's pen. Yes, for, for sure. But there's, there's three levels to each mantra. And, and one is, is out loud and feeling it in the environment. But then the next is to, is to go inside and feel it internally. And the next is to listen to it internally, um, you know, sort of beyond the mantra. So whatever feels good or right in the moment, go go with it, go for it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I I practice the three of them. And oh, yeah, perfect. Out loud, and then yeah. Yeah. Uh, very softly, and then yeah. I listen yeah. the mantra. And yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Great. Mm. Yes, thank okay. you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Marty, there's a question on the chat for you from Joan. It says, could you speak about the value of heart math biofeedback? Yeah. Um, heart math is, uh, if, you, if you haven't heard of it or are not familiar with it, works with heart rate variability. Very good um, uh, technique and very simple uh, technique. It, um, you know, if your heart is functioning correctly there's something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia so that when you inhale your heartbeat 
is going to go up about seven beats a minute on average. And then as you exhale, it's going to go down about seven beats a minute. So inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. But if you're sitting there meditating correctly, breathing diaphragmatically, more often than not, you're going to have good heart rate variability and good respiratory science arrhythmia. But heart, uh, heart math, you know, takes it a step further. You, um, you know, you focus on the heart, you focus on the breath, and you focus on positive emotion. And there's no doubt that positive emotion, you know, has this very powerful effect on the heart. And if you correlate that with uh, your breath, you begin to change your nervous system. And the heart and the brain are, are, you know, intimately connected. I mean, signals are going back and forth uh, one to the other. <clears throat> so I, I think it, it's a very effective tool. And um, I've used it uh, before in my practice. I, what I like about it is it's very simple, um, very simple to do. So yeah, I, I I fully endorse it. I think I think it's useful, um, but I think that um, it it uh, if you you know if you can take it a step further and realize that the heart um, and the, and and the brain have this uh, this communication and synchronization going on all the time, I'd like to see the heart math people take more of that into account. Because when you get the coherence going between the brain and the heart, you get a real a strong change happening. Okay? Anything else? Anybody else? Could, could I ask a question? Um, yes. Has there been any research on, on dreaming, dream states, particularly in relation to meditation, specifically of lucid dreaming? Many of the traditions talk about lucid dreaming as a, as a meditation technique to bring us mm -hmm. back into witnessing. Is mm -hmm. this a scientific uh, examination of that? Well, yeah, um, from, from a few different perspectives, um, you know, from the, uh, I won't talk about the scientific perspective yet, but yoga nidra, of course, is the technique uh, that we're taught to develop the ability <clears throat> to put the body asleep and keep the mind awake to, to consciously go into that witness state. Swami Rama, who I mentioned earlier, um, Roy knew him very well. And, and Roy told me the last time that he met him in Pennsylvania, Swami Rama said, I don't sleep anymore. And Roy, of course, said, well, what do you do? He said, I go into yoga nidra for two or three hours every night. And that's all I need. Um, so I started to look into yoga nidra after that. Mm. But what, um, what uh, you know, science says about this, uh, there's actually a broad spectrum of uh, different theories because science would explain yoga nidra, you know, mind awake, body asleep, as what they call sleep paralysis, which um, can be very scary to some people. Um, you know, it has to do with, the, how the brain activates uh, different levels of the cortex, depending on whether you're, you need to go to sleep and be under aroused or whether you need to be activated and alert. So, um, you know, it's a, it, there, there's sort of a cartography, you know, cartography is, is, is a map of consciousness that um, we can learn how to navigate. 
uh, and lucid dreaming, you can be taught how to do uh, lucid dreaming because it is a specific brainwave state. It's generally theta. Um, and theta is, is sort of this um, reverie state. But if you can learn how to remain conscious in that, which is beta brainwaves, you can learn to develop uh, lucid dreaming. But we don't want to go too deep into theta when we meditate because what will happen is um, uh, if, we're, if we're not uh, really trained in, in being, maintaining alertness and being conscious, what can happen if we start going into uh, states like lucid dreaming and so on, we can go too deep into theta. And when you go too deep into theta, the subconscious opens up and all of a sudden, you know, there's pancakes flying through the air or some strange phenomena <laughs> that occurs. You know, what is this? I'm dreaming. You're dreaming. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, I think in the beginning, it's a good idea just to stay with focused, attentive, concentrated meditation. And then, then, then once you have that, you can play around with uh, deeper states and lucid dreaming and so on. Okay. Anything else? Marty, there's a couple more questions that have come over on the chat. Um, yeah. One is from John. What effect does caffeine have on the nervous system? Basically, you know, caffeine is a stimulant and it's going to activate the nervous system. Um, and there's a, you know, we, we learned in school when we were studying the autonomic nervous system, <clears throat> When you need coffee, don't drink it <laughs> because you just stress out your nervous system by giving it an artificial stimulant. When you don't need coffee, it's fine to drink it. So um, it, I think the answer to that, that is, is it depends, uh, you know, on the state that you're in and the condition that your nervous system is in. If your nervous system your autonomic nervous system is a little on edge, a little overactivated. You don't want to pour uh, caffeine into that. Aside from the fact that caffeine, you know, makes your liver dump uh, sugar uh, into your bloodstream and it messes up the fatty acids and so on there, you know, and then there's some potential benefits from uh, uh, coffee, for instance, that uh, appears to protect the liver in, in certain instances. But, Anyway, the long and shorter is it, caffeine is is a is an activator activates epinephrine, your adrenaline, and in some people norepinephrine. So you have to be careful with it. You can um, you know it can make it difficult to meditate because you drink a cup of coffee and uh, the caffeine starts uh, creating a lot of brain chatter. Some people, if they're prone to uh, attention deficit issues, caffeine uh, is uh, in the same category of stimulant as the well-known drug called Ritalin, methylphenidate. Uh, so some people, caffeine actually helps them focus, but I, I you know, I, I don't recommend it for that. That's for sure. Um, meditation in itself will help to train the brain to focus because it's just a neurological process that can be trained just like a muscle can be trained. Okay. Marty, just one, uh, another question popped into my mind as a clinical researcher, 
Do you see any psychological change of the clients or the patients or all the people you are um, having every day in your work? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what we're looking at. We're giving uh, psychological batteries that measure um, different components. Uh, my, know, my question was regarding the last three, four months, the uh, corona pandemic. How do oh, people change? Oh, we haven't we haven't measured anybody yet with that, not yet. But do you feel it? Yeah, I, the, you know, it. Um, as I said, I'm I'm from California. I I, I haven't been there in five months. But I stay in touch with uh, with a lot of my friends and people out there, and um, you know, the, it, there's 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 an increase in substance abuse, for instance. Um, as I as I mentioned, those three parts of the autonomic nervous system are are what's creating, and depending on the person, are what's creating the psychological changes that are occurring. Um, most people I know are coping pretty well, but there there are instances uh, where if people don't have the tools and the, the meditation techniques and so on and so forth, where you see some uh, some really significant increases in things like, as I said, depression, um, substance abuse, and domestic violence. So um, these are all problems. William, I don't know if that answered your question. Was that what you were asking? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, we all, when you go, when we go around in the town or when we relate to other people, we see how they change and what uh, this pandemic do with them psychologically. And for me, it was very interesting just to hear from you. How is your experience going every day to a clinic, uh, having everyday relations to patients, let's say, And uh, what is the real influence? And um, at the end, well, how can we um, relate to them in a, in a beneficial and supportive way? Yeah, it's very, it's very challenging because one of the most healing uh, things that we can do is social interaction. And that's what we're all craving. And there's so many barriers to that now that, that this is really a challenge. Uh, and, and that's why I think meditation is so important because we, We learn to find, uh, it's not social interaction, obviously, but we learn to find a peace inside of ourselves that we're not searching for outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that, that that's very, very important. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, Marty, I have a question. Mm -hmm. And that is um, when you were talking about heart math and learning to play with the heart, the breath, and positive emotions, but you mentioned about bringing in heart and brain coherence. Is there any, you know, other than maybe just playing and meditate, playing with that during meditation, um, is there a source that uh, talks about this? If, if my memory serves me, there's a couple of papers written on it, you know, correlating heart frequencies with brain frequencies. You know, my book that I wrote is called The Brain Sutras. The next book I, I write, I think, is going to be called The Heart Sutras because there's a, there's a very important connection there. Um, and, you know, there's sort of an argument 
among clinicians, which is superior, the brain or the heart. And uh, I heard the other day uh, that Ramana Maharishi, you know, the great saint of Arunachala in India, uh, he, uh, he said, he said, meditate on the heart. Don't go anywhere else. That's where you have to go when you meditate. But then of course, you know, we've heard other teachers say, no, meditate up in the third eye or the crown chakra. That's where you go. Um, I was giving a lecture once and somebody got very upset that all I was doing was talking about the brain, the brain, the brain. Why aren't you talking about the heart? And it dawned on me in that moment. I said to them, um, well, as far as I know, you can transplant a heart and still be you, but you probably can't do that with the brain. <laughs> of course, you're always going to be you, but the brain is what houses our personalities, obviously our conditionings, our mental modifications, and so on. Uh, who knows? Maybe we'd be better without it. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, there's a, there's a, a, this intimate relationship between the brain and the heart. And I think that that's really the key here. We have to learn how to, uh, how that works. So I'm working on that, but I'll bet if you, if you look, cause it, as I said in my memory, there, there's a, there's some papers somewhere about that brain and heart coherence. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Marty, I have another question on the chat. Mm-hmm. I suffer from CRPS, have limited mobility at the moment. I practice meditation, nidra, kundalini, and stimulation of the vega nerve. Are there any other yoga modalities or suggestions you might have? Hmm. Well, you know, you, that's, that's complicated. Um, you have to look at uh, individual um, uh, you know, the body type, uh, things like that. Anything that, uh, theoretically, anything that will trigger the vagal nerve, though, uh, would be important. So, uh, you know, just uh, basic um, breath awareness, particularly working on a ratio of exhalation to inhalation. So we know that inhalation corresponds with an activation of the sympathetic nervous system and exhalation exhalation corresponds to an activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. So whenever there's an issue like CRPS or any chronic pain issues, we work on uh, lengthening the exhalation relative to the inhalation. So in other words, if you're inhaling to the count of three, you exhale to the count of six. Very simple. Um, and that that will activate the, the vagal nerve or the parasympathetic nervous system. Very simple. Thank you. You're welcome. I have one more, Marty. Can you please explain the non-dreaming state? And then there's a question, where are you? <laughs> you're everywhere <laughs> Aturia <clears throat> so well there, you know there's there is a um, there is an unconscious non-dreaming where you for all intents and purposes you're offline your brain is offline but then there's Turiya the fourth state where you are um, you know if you can learn how to be conscious in that state 
you're, you are experiencing uh, reality. You're experiencing your larger real self in that state. You know, and the goal, of course, is to always be in Turiya or have access to Turiya. But there's, you know, there's always a little activity going on in there in the brain, even in, when, you're, when you're totally unconscious and not uh, experiencing dreaming. There's just little, little blurbs, little electrical explosions of things happening even in that state. Turiya is a conscious state. They're, they're, everything is quiet, but you're conscious, you're aware. And obviously you're not in a dream state. Okay, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate seeing your faces. And if I don't see your face, I can see your name or your picture. Um, I'm glad uh, that we have this forum. And I'm very thankful for uh, Pascal for uh, being our hostess. Thankful for Ron, for Leody, for... Um, Everybody else who's contributing, I think uh, this is this is a, a great blessing that we all get to do this this way. Although I do miss seeing you all face to face physically, <laughs> but we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, have a wonderful day, wonderful week, everybody. Thank you, Marty. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. Bye bye.